you have to admit you have a problem. And then once you recognize you have the problem, both on an individual level and then an institutional level, what do we do about it? Welcome to The Digest, the podcast where we get real about diversity and inclusion on the ground, looking at the stories and the journeys of activists and allies in the DNI space globally. My name's Helen Maguire. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Diversely, and I'll be talking to all sorts of characters from around the world about what they're doing in the DNI space and their journey to get there. My guest today is Dr. Nicole Christian Braithwaite. Dr. Nicole holds many a title, but amongst them is Chief Medical Officer at Array, a tech platform that's helping people to understand their trauma from a racial perspective and, of course, to improve their experience of it. And I'll dive straight into our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you along. Hi, thank you for having me. You're most welcome. And I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, you guys reached out to us here at Diversely and, and on the Digest to explain a little bit about your, your background and, and how you got involved in the DNI space. And it's such a compelling story and actually not an angle that we've covered previously on the podcast. So perhaps you could just start off by giving us a very kind of brief intro into who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, So again, my name is Dr. Nicole Christian Brathwaite. I know it's a a mouthful, um, but I am a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I am chief medical officer of outpatient services at Array Behavioral Care. We're a large telehealth company in the U.S. Um, I also, on the side, do consulting in the DEI space, specifically DEI plus trauma-informed to schools, organizations, universities, around how to both become more trauma-informed and anti-racist. And my clinical specialty includes being trauma-informed and supporting underserved and marginalized patients who have experienced trauma often connected to their race or ethnicity. I'd love to dig into that a little bit before we kind of cycle back to your beginnings, let's say, because that to me is a new phrase. So trauma around DNI is a relatively new concept, I suppose. We've talked about it in, in certain respects with some of our other guests, but I've never heard it put exactly like that. So could you explain a little bit about what that looks like or comes across as, let's say, from a patient perspective? Absolutely. And to be honest, even in psychiatry and medicine, it's not a phrase that we've learned. And even understanding trauma beyond what we consider typical trauma, like vets or physical or emotional abuse, we really don't learn much outside of that. However, particularly over the last few years, there's been this racial awakening um, and also the realization that people of color are suffering. Their mental health is suffering. Um, and not even just adult children too, the rates of suicide in African-American and Latino kids is exponentially increasing over the years. And so essentially racial trauma means that there are certain experiences, whether they may seem minor or major, that occur over an individual's life that significantly negatively impact their mental and physical health. Um, and with trauma, each traumatic experience is cumulative. So these, these negative experiences build over time, um, and, we, and we know that experiencing frequent trauma over a lifetime increases the risk of chronic disease, early death, significant mental illness. And even though it's not clearly described in the DSM, which is the, the book that psychiatrists use to diagnose, 
it's very clear that it's a significant illness that many people around the world are struggling with. And in terms of trauma itself, so this is something I'm going to guess that, that you will have studied at, at medical school. Would I be correct? Not as much as I would have liked, but some, yes. Okay. And from that perspective on trauma, what would be the more traditional definition of it, let's say, that perhaps is more well-known? Sure. So I think when we think of the formal diagnosis of trauma, we think of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And in terms of day-to-day, what it looks like, this is an individual, again, the, the most common example being a vet who's experienced a horrific event. And whatever this event was, it outstripped their ability to cope. It was an event that was life-threatening to them or life-threatening to people they cared about. And over time, they have flashbacks and nightmares and they um, have avoidant behaviors. Um, They often display mood changes or lability um, and they're re-experiencing that event. It it feels like it's happening all over again and it really impacts their, their quality of life. But the same can be said for victims of racial trauma. I think it's really interesting that that's now being applied you know, in, in a wider sense, because, you know, sitting here as a, you know, as a, as a white heterosexual person, that seems incredibly tragic, actually, that just by living your life as a person of color, or let's say a different sexual orientation, or whatever it might be, is essentially traumatic to the point of being physically and mentally disabling. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be direct racism, even if you think about environmental racism, walking into, I I always think about walking into a major hospital and I look at the pictures on the walls, 99% of the time, nobody looks like me. The the people that are upheld as the heroes of medicine or the people that we should uh, really look up to are often white male. But as I'm moving along in my career, what, what does that say about my value? Even growing up in an underserved community where you're over policed, or there's not access to supermarkets or transportation. All of that are still forms of racism. And in many different ways, that's also traumatic. And so racism doesn't have to be someone using a racial slur. Racism could be being overlooked for a promotion frequently or noticing people's change in their body language when you walk into a room. Um, and so again, these, these minor things that people of color, what we often call microaggressions, we experience every day not realizing that it's this cumulative negative effect on our bodies. And I mean, I, I'm sitting here obviously looking at you. I can see you are, I'm going to use the term Afro-American. Would I be correct in using that? Sure. So I can see that. Obviously, people listening can't necessarily see that or wouldn't know you. From a personal perspective, does it feel almost in some ways life-threatening? It is. It absolutely is life-threatening. And there's a, a term called adverse childhood experiences um, or ACEs. And these are negative traumatic events that occurred um, before the age of 18. And the more of these events you experience over a lifetime, the greater the risk of long-term disease. If you experience six ACEs before the age of 18, it decreases life expectancy by 20 years. And as I mentioned, racism, discrimination, homophobia, police brutality, growing up in poverty, all of those are ACEs. So simply being Black in America, potentially in any country, honestly, growing up in an impoverished or underserved community, being over-policed, being discriminated against, walking into a school where we know the the discipline rates are very different for Black and white kids, just simply existing increases your your rate of um, early death. 
it increases the risk of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, teen pregnancy, just about any disease you can think of is directly connected to early trauma. So basically, by the time you get to the age of 18, you're massively on the back foot just in terms of life expectancy, health, you know, just being a human being, let alone the opportunities that you may or may not then be able to access beyond that. And it's, you know, it's not definite, but the the risks are much higher. Yeah. And I want to take you back a little bit because you, you touched on there about growing up in impoverished communities as an underrepresented group and some of the practical associations with that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in that space? Sure. Um, and, and I think certainly my own lived experience is what motivated me to enter into this space. One of the reasons I'm very passionate about it, but the, the first few years of my life, my mother and I were homeless. She's educated, professional woman, born in the 80s. She was laid off. Um, she couldn't afford a house. We, we lost our home. It, we foreclosure. And the first few years of my life, we didn't have a lot of options. Living in shelters, trying to find different family members or friends, just realizing that when we're looking at who's homeless, Black and Latino people were significantly overrepresented. So because of that, my mother actually started a nonprofit organization called Dignity Housing that specifically supports and helps families who are homeless. Um, but, but that experience completely opened my eyes. Um, and I you know, grew up around people who were activists, who were actively engaged in, um, in changing the way that the homelessness and the government treats homeless people, changing the racial dynamics involved in poverty. Um, and so I, I knew in one way or another, I was going to work in this field. It just, it was a part, it's a part of who I am. Um, but as I learned more about medicine and realized that it's not just housing where there's a problem, it's, I mean, it's frankly everywhere, but looking and watching people around me die early, watching my family members receive treatment that I didn't really understand, but recognized was not just, it changed my perspective and pushed me towards the field of medicine. Tell us a little bit about what that was like for you, you know, in those early years, what kind of memory do you have of that? If it was, if it was so early on in your, in your childhood, what impact did it have on you? I surprisingly think of a, a lot of the, the memories fondly. My mother did as much as she could to, to protect me from the more traumatic experiences. So, you know, certainly witnessed violence, certainly, you know, witnessed people using substances, but I didn't necessarily understand mm. what that was. My mom, uh, before she started Dignity Housing, organized a group of people to, to protest on a regular basis against unfair housing practices and discriminatory or predatory housing practices. So I many times see my mother be arrested and be roughed up by police. And I think that was both um, invigorating and terrifying and angering. But I also knew that she wasn't going to back down. This was something that um, was her life mission. And, you know, that to me, I, I recognize the sacrifices that she was willing to make um, of the adults, whoever, there was always one adult assigned to stay with the kids knowing that the other adults would probably be arrested. And those were all sacrifices that they were willing to make. That's incredible. So you you were essentially surrounded by, and I'm going to say women, were, were there also men involved in this and the protests yes. and so on? Yes. Okay. I mean, it was primarily led by women, but there were men as well. And what were the discriminatory practices that she was experiencing at that at that time? You know, was that extending your period of homelessness? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, looking looking at mortgages, and we're even seeing that now where the interest rates 
are much higher for people of color or not being approved for loans because of their race or ethnicity or the landlord giving, you know, providing people with terrible apartments that are overpriced um, and really not safe to be lived in or being evicted unfairly, even, you know, illegally in the middle of winter in, you know, places where it's completely unsafe to be evicted during that time of the year and are just not giving the opportunity at all to find equal housing. And what was the result of, of the protests and so on? I mean, you mentioned that it, it was a, you know, a few years in terms of a period. What, when did it start to get better? It really started to change when she built the nonprofit because it, it was more than just protesting. That you know, protesting is very effective in pushing policymakers and making the, the issue more visible. Uh, but my mom decided she wanted to be even more impactful, both on a, a public policy level, but also on an individual level. And so when she built Dignity Housing, it started first, they, they bought an apartment building and they supported families, mostly women and children, in finding safe housing. And then they started doing job training. And then they started even with helping people shop for appropriate clothing. And then they started with case management and support. And then it expanded from there. Now they have hundreds of homes and apartment buildings and job training. And, and we, I used to go out with my mom, even as a teenager, and people would stop us every day saying thank you to her. You, you changed my life because of you. I, I'm no longer on the streets or because of you. I just graduated from college. It, I mean, it, it was incredible. It continues to be incredible that the organization continues to live on. And it's still a part of my life and my mom's life. Why do you think your mom got the guts to do this? Because, you know, she's obviously not the only one struggling with that situation. She's she's got you as a, you know, as a tiny person at that point. Um, she's got an awful lot of other things to, to be dealing with. Why her? I don't know. That's a great question. I, my mom is one of these people. She doesn't often fight for herself, but she always fights for other people. And I, I, I feel like I inherited that as well. I can't I can't sit still when I witness injustice. Like it's just, it, it almost burned me on the inside to not do something. And my mother is that the same way. She's brilliant. She's an incredible writer. She's an incredible speaker. She's charismatic. And so she she draws people to her. I don't think I'm that amazing or great, but I, I've, I've gained a, or, you know, earned a lot of those same qualities. And it, it's just become a purpose and a mission. And it's still going now. And your mom is still at the helm, so to speak. Well, she's retired, but they still consult her um, mm. and she still, you know, is a member of the board and supports it and frankly supports me. And even though she's not involved in medicine, I consult her for a lot of the work that I do. She edits my papers. She edits my PowerPoint. You know, I, I trust her and we still have the same mission and purpose in life. Um, and she continues to still guide me um, and guide other people as a more as a, an advisor and I want to kind of skip to the present day I would also skip back to your journey as well but in terms of where you see zooming out this has really gone you know you, you mentioned that people stop you in the street and so on but has it changed the bigger picture in this space you know what what are the issues that are still being faced here it's challenging because racism is structural um it's institutional it's individual so it, at every single level of an individual's life or experience, they, they encounter racism. There, there are very few places as a person of color, um, speaking more specifically about America, but I, I'm sure it's the same for the UK. There are very few places that you can go as a person of color where you're not at risk for experiencing some kind of racism. The housing market is just one of those. There have been numerous studies over the last few years of predatory lending practices um, by multiple large banks. 
um, or banks, you know, saying that they're now hiring people of color, but we, we realized that they really weren't. It was all for show. So we're still seeing some of that. However, there are more protections now available for homeowners, for renters, so that people aren't receiving the, you know, these landlords that are slumlords. So there, there's less of that. It's certainly still present, um, but people are more aware and there are now laws available to support the actual individuals who, who could be victims. So there's more recourse, essentially. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and awareness, certainly. Yeah. It's such an interesting point, actually, because, you know, as I said, as a white person, sometimes it's hard for me to put myself in, in your shoes, let's say. But I have experienced something similar to this whilst living in Asia, actually. And it's the lack of recourse. It's just mm-hmm. the kind of you're shouting into the wind. It doesn't really matter whether something is unfair or not. The fact is, there's literally nothing you can do about it because the system does not support you. There's no way in. Is that you know, to put it back into your context, is that kind of what's changed? Yes. Um, it, you know, having recourse, having an opportunity to have a voice. I, I think we're also seeing that in the Black Lives Matter movement. We now have an opportunity to speak up and to be heard, to have that, to stand up at the podium and to say, this is unjust. This is what needs to change and being very clear about it. Uh, similarly, in medicine and in the housing market, uh, coming with very specific recommendations for changes. That's also been helpful. So, you know, screaming into the void, this needs to change without offering solutions is not, is not helpful. Mm. But being able to say, this is, these are the problems and this is what needs to change. That also is, has been a catalyst to, to move things forward. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because, you know, it's a bit like that age old question of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, you need to break it down into where these biases and discrimination exists and I really like the way you've put that you know you look at it from the medical perspective you look at it from a housing perspective you look at it from a commercial perspective whatever it might be rather than seeing it as a huge kind of wall of problems you start to break it down and put in practices that change in each industry almost yeah you have to otherwise it's overwhelming Mm. if you just look at the system as a whole it feels like that change is impossible but but it's not when, when you're able to focus and, you know, realizing that housing was not my purpose, but medicine and mental health is, that's where I'm able to focus my energies. That's where I'm able to affect change. And before we just move on to that, I wanted to kind of check in with you on, on the Black Lives Matter movement, which is now, you know, a couple of years old, I guess, or certainly in its present form, at least. What's your feeling on it? Because I get the sense now that there is, you know, talking to people, there seems to be a little bit of a backlash against it. It seems to feel a little bit hollow. Yeah. So there, you know, again, there, there has there has to be a specific vision. And there are many different components of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that they were most effective in, again, drawing attention to the problems. During COVID, people didn't have many other things to do. So this was the opportune time to really identify the problems, to broadcast um, these unjust practices or over-policing or, you know, watching Black people be murdered or beaten and really saying that we, we have to do something about this. Unfortunately, you know, it was taken as a, you know, a political thing. And, and people, instead of seeing the term Black lives should matter or Black lives also matter, they, people interpreted as, you know, Black lives matter and no one else does. And that, mm. that's never what it was intended to be. But of course, like many things like critical race theory, it's politicized, it's turned and it's, it's made to be something negative. So then instead of focusing on the purpose, 
people start focusing on the politics and, and arguing points that aren't even relevant. And unfortunately, that's, that's a lot of where things have gone. And, and when people, even well-meaning people, step into the movement, but not understanding it, it unfortunately shifts and the purpose and the vision is lost. Do you feel like that's happened with it? Is that is that where we are? I do. I don't think it's irreparable damage, uh, but I do think that you know when you see a, a term "Black Lives Matter," it's you you may have a visceral reaction because of the political conversations around it, because of so many people trying to to make that phrase be negative or be associated with violence or looting, and that's never really what it was about. So, you know, I, I still think we can change it. I still think that the vision is there. The fact is that Black lives should matter and they don't. That's the point. Um, and we need to change that so that Black lives do matter. So the phrase for me is still very relevant. It's still very important. And even for Black youth, Black individuals, it is important for them to hear terms like your life does matter. You are valuable because everything else, so, much, so many other things that they hear in school, in the media, is that you're the problem. You're bad. You don't matter. And so we, we need to continue saying that just, just to try to counteract all of the negative images that they see and receive on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think it's okay for these things to evolve, you know, to mature. I love the addition of the should. I think that's, you know, that almost should be added to the to the hashtag because it then negates, as you say, so many of those kind of counter arguments and confusions and so on around it. And, you know, as I said, I, I love the fact that, you know, a solution based approach to it. The awareness is there now. What's the solution? You know, how do you start actually tackling it bit by bit by bit to break it down? And in terms of your experience of, I suppose, Black Lives Should Matter, you know, as you say, you were brought up in a situation where your mum was fighting for this, you know, pretty much from when you were born. Did you ever feel like your life didn't matter? I've certainly been in environments where it felt like I didn't. I um, grew up in a very diverse community in Philadelphia, but I certainly witnessed community violence. I, I witnessed police disregarding the loss of life in my community. I went to a, a private, predominantly white high school um, where I certainly experienced racism, um, where you know teachers, students assumed that my intelligence was less simply because of the color of my skin. So it was a constant battle for me. I, I fortunately have a wonderful family who poured into me nonstop. And my mother never stopped encouraging me and, and never stopped telling me what my potential is. You know, I, I remember I had an organic chemistry teacher and I told him I wanted to be a physician. And, and he told me I should, I should look at a less challenging career. Um, this is not really, that's not really fit for me. And I, I remember going home and telling my mom and she's like, that's, that's racism and you're capable of anything. That, that's his problem, not your problem. Um, but there's so many children who who don't have that support and don't know that this should yeah. not be said to them and this is not their reality. We, you know, in high schools all the time I talk to patients who say their their guidance counselor told them not to apply to college or not to look at those specific schools because they they just didn't believe in them or didn't see them as capable. So that even that is a way of someone telling you that you're you're not enough. You don't matter. Is it almost I suppose high school did it almost feel like a bit of a a rebellion for you, the chance to prove them wrong. Yeah, I, I always feel like I, I'm, I'm in a challenge to prove people wrong because even now, um, as a young Black woman in a leadership position, I frequently encounter people who don't believe I deserve to be there, don't think I should be there. Um, and so it's even now, it's, it's a daily fight that I, I always have to ensure that 
people recognize my skill set. And, you know, frankly, it's also exhausting. Is that how it feels? You know, it does. Not always, but it certainly can. You know, if you ask most Black women, and I think where Black women make up about two to three percent of people in medicine. Uh, so obviously, we're a significant minority. Um, and, and most Black women will tell you that their, their training experience was difficult, if not traumatic. Medicine was never really designed to be supportive of people of color, uh, particularly Black women. And so we, we face a significant uphill battle to be successful. So when you, when you meet a Black doctor, recognizing that they've had to go through significant challenges to be where they, they are, they've had to work twice as hard as their colleagues to be respected. I mean, I, I think in your case, significant doesn't even cover it really you know when you when you look back at 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 the situations that that you faced in your life and I guess you know once you got through high school at at what point did you decide you wanted to be a physician at what point was that that that's it that's for me I've always thought about it my mom has pictures of me I think I was like six or seven with the little plastic doctor (laughs) stethoscope and I was you know working on Curious George and so it's, it's always been uh, health was very important to me. As I mentioned, I, I had a lot of family members who suffered from health problems. My father died a week before my high school graduation from a heart attack at 54 years old. And, and so I, you know, I, I kept seeing people die far too young. And again, I didn't understand it, but I knew it, it shouldn't happen and it, it doesn't need to happen. But it was really solidified for me. My senior year of college, I spent some time abroad in Mexico and I came back with tuberculosis and I had to be hospitalized for months in a negative pressure room, completely isolated my senior year of college. And some of my doctors were amazing and phenomenal. And some of my doctors were horrible. And they treated me like I was an annoyance or an inconvenience. And the same with the nurses. Some nurses were so incredibly supportive. Other nurses would walk in at six o'clock in the morning, stick a needle in my arm before I even woke up. Um, and they're just, they're, there was this disregard in some ways. And for me, that, that experience let me know what a patient should feel like or should experience and what they shouldn't. Um, and that, that was a motivating factor. And then I, after college, I spent a year teaching health at a, a local Philadelphia public middle and high school. And then I, I realized my purpose had to go beyond medicine. So many of the kids I worked with were struggling in school, not because of physical health problems, but because of trauma, because of mental health problems. But, you know, in, in that section of West Philadelphia, a large percentage of the population is impoverished. Many kids lived in shelters with their families and the, the level of depression and trauma and anxiety was overwhelming. And it negatively impacted the school's ability to teach and the children's ability to learn. Absolutely. I mean, you and I both have young kids and, you know, I, I get drilled all the time on what to feed my kids, you know, what they watch, what they do, the time, the way that they spend their time. And even with me trying my absolute hardest, you know, I still sometimes end up with angry kids at the end of the day or frustrated kids or sad kids or whatever it is. I can only imagine if there is zero effort put into that or even a negative effort put into that, so to speak what the not not just what the impact is on those kids but on that community as you say on the school and then the school's response to that and so on and so forth it's almost like a spiral isn't it right exactly and and this during that time it was during the no kids left behind so many extracurricular activities were removed the focus was on math and reading kids weren't given breaks mental health was not prioritized what we call SEL now social emotional learning just really wasn't present and so those those other things that kids needed 
just weren't there. The focus was learn, learning these core subjects and anything else beyond that is not important. And if you can't do it, it's not the school's problem, it's your problem. And so the, those kids were kind of, and unfortunately they were left behind despite the, the term, no kid left behind. There were so many children that were left behind. And was that then when you kind of thought, okay, this is the sort of direction I want to go in. Now I'm really clear. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I still hadn't fully experienced what it meant to be a child psychiatrist. I, I certainly had a therapist growing up that was very helpful. My, my mom used to call him my worry doctor uh, because <laughs> I had so much anxiety. Uh, so I, I knew the benefits of therapy and I knew I wanted to be like that. Uh, but it wasn't until I reached medical school and sought out mentorship that I really understood and saw what that meant. Through medical school, I did a lot of research at juvenile detention center. Again, 80% of the kids that I worked with suffered from some form of mental illness, whether it was depression, trauma, secondary substance use, ADHD, and many of them were there partly because of their mental illness being untreated. And again, that was yet a, another motivation for me. 80% of the kids in juvenile detention, similar to adult prisons, are kids of color. And many of those kids didn't deserve to be there. They, they needed help, not imprisonment. That must have been a, another very traumatic experience for you. It was. I used to cry, honestly, often after meeting with a lot of the kids. My, my job as essentially the research assistant was to collect data and um, ask screening questions to the kids. But even beyond that, we would just talk because often there was no one else who would listen to these children and hearing about the trauma really starting to understand the school to prison pipeline. You know, a kid is disruptive in class. And rather than asking why or looking beyond the behavior, they were, this resource officer was called and they, they and then they're arrested for disorderly conduct. And the same kid I'm talking to just that morning witnessed his mother being beaten. And so how, how could he focus in class? Of, of course he's agitated, but never did anyone explore that. Never did anyone ask about why his behavior was was presenting in that way. No one actually looked at the pain behind it. Instead, he ended up in juvenile detention. Is there a way of getting behind that problem even further in terms of, you know, because pe- people respond only in a way that they know how to respond. You know, often it's said if 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 people could could do better, they would do better. You know, if they could, if they knew how to behave better, they would. With children, you can't really blame them. You know, it's not, it, it takes time to learn those behaviors. But for the people in education, for the teachers and so on, where's the kind of support there, if you like, for them to be able to identify and get underneath those behaviors and problems without that kind of knee-jerk reaction happening? And, and that's a lot of the work that I do in schools is, is around that education. But the fact remains that teachers do know how to respond appropriately. It just depends on who the student is. So when we look at white students and Black and Latino students, when they present with the exact same behaviors, white students are three times as likely to be referred to support or services or therapy. And the Black and Latino students are significantly more likely to be referred um, to detention or suspension or expulsion. You know, even looking at the data, Black preschoolers make up about 18 to 19% of preschool enrollment but they receive almost 50% of expulsions. And these are three-year-olds. So, I mean, we're, before kids even enter into the mainstream school system, kids of color are, are being targeted and discriminated against. There are you know, studies looking at teachers, they, there are four kids in a room, one black boy, a black girl, and a white girl, and a white boy. And they're told that some of these kids have behavioral problems. In reality, none of them do. 
and consistently the teachers identify the black boy as being the problem. And there's no evidence that he was, but simply having that bias. And so a lot of the work that I do is one, pushing teachers to acknowledge that bias. No one ever wants to. No one ever wants to admit um, that they may have bias. So one is you have to admit you have a problem. And then once you recognize you have the problem, both on an individual level and then an institutional level, what do we do about it? So educating schools and, and teachers about what the problem is, how to address it, how do you manage your individual bias? What policies or procedures can we put in place to protect kids of color? What can the school do on a much larger level to change uh, some of these outcomes? And if we have a resource officer, how do we use them so that kids aren't ending up in prison? So in many ways, you're doing, you're carrying on the work that your your mother did, but in a very different sector. You know, it, it sounds like a very institutional change that you're working on and, and that needs to, to happen, really, for this to improve. Yeah, because so much intersects with mental health. Um, and, and as a child psychiatrist, school is where kids spend the majority of their life. And realizing that often that's where a lot of the trauma happens and occurs early on. That's where I'm, I'm focused in terms of a lot of my energy is around educating and, and changing that experience for kids so they're not accumulating more trauma simply because they're attending school. But also whatever we do to support the marginalized group ultimately helps everyone. Um, and so it's not even just to support and change dynamics for underserved kids. Any of these changes that we implement, equity improves the life for the teachers and for students across the board. And do you see this happening? I mean, this is obviously you're talking about, let's say, your immediate space, the area near near to you. Do you see this happening elsewhere? Is there hope that there is this kind of work going on that will uplift from the ground up, so to speak? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I receive calls for professional development, uh, grand rounds from all over the country. This is, again, you know, COVID has been a, a terrible experience, but one of the positives is that people had to sit down and pay attention. Schools had to, to recognize how many students were actually suffering. And then when they started to, to look into that more specifically, they realized a demographic, a proportion of that population was suffering significantly more. And once they realized that, then, then schools, they, you couldn't deny that anymore. It couldn't be something that, that could be ignored. And not all, not all educational um, environments, not all schools are, are willing to change. There's certainly many that, in fact, are going the opposite way, you know, burning books, um, refusing to even mention race, changing textbooks so that sla- the word slavery isn't even included. Um, so there, you know, there's certainly that divide where some are pushing even more in the other direction to avoid these conversations. But Many others are recognizing that in order to be supportive educational environment, things need to change. And how hopeful do you feel that that change is, is starting to happen? On a smaller level, I'm, I'm very hopeful with the individual schools that I've worked with. Um, I see that change. Um, I also challenge them a little bit. I, I'm very clear when people call me, I am not a one and done person. I can't do one lecture and then have you feel like you've, you've made a change or that you've done something incredible. I'm asking you to do more. I'm expecting more. So it can't just be you can now check a box because you, you've had someone come and talk about racism or trauma. Um, are you looking at your disciplinary practices? Are you asking parents and children to give feedback about their experiences within your school? When you walk into the school and you're looking at the, the pictures on the walls and the environment, is it welcoming? If there's a, a Black trans girl in your school, 
and they walk through the doors, do they feel supported? Is this an environment where they feel safe? And so from every level, again, the teacher, the individual to the superintendent, changes have to be made. And, and I even tell schools that the, the janitor, the resource officer, everyone who interacts with a child needs to understand this and needs to be trained. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone needs to be fully on board with with the approach. You know, one person can make a huge kind of difference if, if they're not, let's put it that way. And I suppose my final question to you around this is, what's your bigger goal? What's your ideal? What, what do you want to see? What will make you happy, let's say, at the age of, I don't know, 75 or whatever, when you retire? That's a great question. I hope when I, I look back 50 years from now, I can I can see that tangible change. I, I can see that laws or policies, even if it's just in the city or state where I live, have been enacted to ensure that Black and Latino kids aren't disciplined at, at three times the rate of white kids, that mental health services are embedded in every school, not simply the schools that are in a higher tax bracket and can afford it or independent or private schools. Um, I'm hoping that when teachers look at a child's behavior or misbehavior, they interpret it as a symptom um, and not as a a defining quality um, or a problem. And and they're able to ask deeper questions and support kids more rather than kids walking away feeling targeted. So I, you know, my hope is that when a child walks into school, they feel safe, they feel supported, they feel seen and, and fully accepted. And and school is a safe place where they are not expected or uh, more trauma. I think it's a, it feels like something that shouldn't be a goal. It feels like something that should just be a reality. It's hard to accept that it's not. It's hard to hear that it's not. But I think it's quite clearly you've articulated so many of the reasons why it's not and the statistics around the fact that it's not. And I absolutely applaud your your work to make it so. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. You're welcome. And thank thank you so much for sharing so honestly everything that you've been through to get to this point. I think it's incredibly impressive, as I'm sure everybody else will. And where can people find out more about you, your work, get in touch, any of those types of things? Sure. So my full-time job as CMO at the telehealth company, Array, our website is www.arraybc.com. Um, so if people are interested in finding virtual behavioral health support therapists, psychiatrists, uh, they can certainly go there to access more information. If individuals are looking for professional development or opportunities for training, uh, they can go to my website. It's www.arraybc.com well minds with an s consulting.com and you i'm also on social media at dr nicole cb thank you so much and i think you'll probably get a few inquiries there i'm certainly going to check it out myself i think it's absolutely fascinating and you know as i said completely applaud the work that you're doing it's so foundational and fundamental thank you for sharing thank you for having me and thank you for using this platform to really have these discussions So that was Dr. Nicole. I mean, what an astounding story and journey that she's been on. Uh, Thank you so much to her for sharing all the ins and outs and ups and downs and, and everything that she hopes for the future. I think it's phenomenal work, as I'm sure you hopefully do too. And that's really what this podcast is about, having those often quite uncomfortable conversations around what is now called diversity and inclusion, but for many people is just their day-to-day experience of life. And if you want to check out 
what we do, please head over to diversity.io. That's my business. Or of course, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear your perspectives on what we've discussed, or perhaps you have something to add. And until next time, thanks very much for listening.